This is the Play to Win podcast from Aconite Books, with me, James Wallace. This first series of the podcast accompanies my new book, Everybody Wins, Four Decades of the Greatest Board Games Ever Made, out now in the UK and coming to the US and Canada in spring 2023. I'm James Wallace. I've been kicking around the games industry for close on four decades. I started young. I've been a fanzine editor, games journalist, games reviewer, designer, publisher, consultant, games event manager, lecturer in games design, games award creator, and now it seems I'm a games historian. What this means is that over those four decades, I've amassed a pretty good address book of people, interesting people, and celebrated people within the industry which means that over these six episodes, I'm going to be joined by some extraordinary guests. I am delighted and honoured to be joined by two of the stalwarts of the British games industry, both of whom made their first marks on it back in the 1970s. Um, We have David Parlett, who is best known as the creator of Hare and Tortoise, the very first game to win the first Spiel des Jahres back in 1979, though the game itself is older than that. Also the author of The Oxford History of Board Games and The Oxford History of Card Games, and um, a a columnist in Tabletop Gaming Magazine uh, up to the present, and many, many other accomplishments. And also Surrey and Livingston, uh, one of the part of the bedrock of the modern British games industry, without whom, without whose work, Things would look very different indeed. Co-founder of Games Workshop, co-author and founder of the uh, Fighting Fantasy Gamebook line, um, instigator of, of uh, the Lara Croft franchise, um, editor of White Dwarf magazine, to name just a handful of, of his many accomplishments. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure to, to be with you both uh, this afternoon. David, uh, to, to start with you, what you, were you doing in, in the 1970s? You were designing games, but was it even possible to be a professional games designer in the 1970s? I don't think so. Not Certainly not for any British game designers that I know of. Uh, and at the time, the only ones I did know of were foreign ones, German, American. Um, but I had always been an amateur games designer because I, I'd been designing, inventing them at school. Um, in my in my teens, uh, every time I was a great games player, and every time I played a game uh, that I hadn't played before, I promptly perform variations on it and produce my own versions of it. And I think that's probably the way in which most most game inventors proceed. Yes, tweaking and and adapting rather than designing from whole cloth. Yes, it's. it's rather like the same as writing. I've always maintained that writing consists largely of rewriting. Um, games designing, games inventing consists largely of tweaking ideas that already exist. From what I understand, and I have to admit I was too young to be properly paying attention, um, in the 1970s, the place that people looked for interesting new game design, the kind of the heart of... of um, the games world was the UK. It wasn't Germany. It wasn't America. Certainly the Germans were casting envious eyes in our direction and a number of Germans and Americans were coming to to London on regular basis to see what was new and to stock up on on the new titles. What was the the kind of, was there a community? Was there a sense of of, uh, a, a world of games going on? 
Uh, I think there's probably a wider sense than I was aware of. The one that, but the one that I was specifically aware of was the, um, the, the founding and starting of Games and Puzzles magazine. Uh, the very first copy of it I saw in when it first came out in 1972, and it contained an invitation to those people who were interested in games and interested in writing um, to come and join the games testing panel, which I did as soon as possible. Uh, and there uh, I got to know... Um, other people, people like Eric Solomon, for example, uh, who died just a couple of years ago, and David Wells and Steve Jackson, indeed, and some others that uh, sort of sadly gone now, David Pritchard, Albie Fury, and so on. Uh, that, that seemed to be a community within itself. So... Had you had you sold any games up to this point, or, or were you still tinkering? No, no. The very first game I sold was Hare and Tortoise, um, and it was one that Graham Levine, as acting in his capacity as an agent, um, placed for me with Intellect Games, having tried several other companies first, companies which I might say no longer exist. It is interesting that nowadays the, the market has been largely taken over by American um, games companies, Hasbro chiefly, um, uh, and a lot of the interesting new companies were coming up, like Intellect itself, and I think Ariel was another one. Uh, I'm not sure if Ariel still exists. Uh, it may not be the one I'm thinking of. Um, I don't think it does. I can't can't recall. No, no. But it it was it was a line of business jump on the bandwagon of because uh, when intellect overreached themselves and disappeared from view towards the end of the 70s. They were bought out by a company called Turner Research, which had nothing to do with games at all. Oh. Uh, so they obviously thought, this is this is going to be the next big thing and we better get on it. That's interesting. Occasionally there are these mad leaps from companies going into games. The big one, of course, being um, uh, 3M. Uh, back in the 1960s, uh, uh, the mineral mining, uh, the Minnesota Mining and Minerals Company, suddenly decides to set up a game line. I mean, these days they're mostly known for post-it notes and and scotch tape in America. Uh, so one could see they had a line of paper products, but board games seemed like a jump, and yet they created these games, which went on to to change the industry with um, um, Sid Saxon and Alex Randolph as as not exactly the well pretty much the lead designers on on the line it's an odd one um ian you were coming into this this existing world of games presumably you knew games and you were you were enjoying games what made you decide to to jump into it into as a a, a producer and a publisher well i was playing board games at school monopoly and chess the usual fare and there were some okay um, family games at the time, you know, Formula One was pretty good for what it was, and Buccaneer was okay, but they didn't really lack have the depth that I was looking for. And when Steve Jackson, John Peake, and I, three old school friends, met up in London uh, in in the early seventies, 
used to stay in a lot and play lots of board games. And those were primarily Avalon Hill games and SPI games coming over from the US. And also Diplomacy, which we played an awful lot. We also played a game that Steve had discovered at university called The Warlord, which had been ah, yes. designed by um, Mike Hayes, who was a Sheffield University lecturer. And that was, I mean, if you like Risk, you're going to love The Warlord because the combat system was incredible in itself, that it wasn't just a matter of rolling dice. You had to set the dice and the other person had to predict what that number might be. And the, the higher you risked, um, hiding the dice number, the more the reward would be, but also the possibility of the loss would be great if if the, if the opponent guessed what that number might be. So that was a, a fascinating game uh, in, in itself. So we were playing all these games and thought, wouldn't it be great if we could somehow turn our hobby of playing games into some sort of fledgling business? So we, we re reached out to everybody we knew uh, through our little fanzine called Owl and Weasel. And, um, and we were fortunate and you some might say amazingly fortunate that one of the copies found its way to gary gygax in the us who wrote to us and said um love your magazine here's this this game i've just invented and that game was dungeons and dragons and um we played it steve and i became obsessed with it john less so and we put together all the money we had the available cash and uh, we had enough money to order six copies on the back of that order we got a three-year exclusive distribution agreement for the whole of europe Wow. And this is Dungeons and Dragons last year was a billion dollar brand. This is this is extraordinary. So that must have been 1974, 1975. The game was hot off the press. Yeah, we 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 first played played it early 75 and then we were selling mail orders through uh, Alan Wiesland kind of June onwards. And uh, and to David's point about um where were people discovering games in the UK? Well, we, we ran our first Games Day in, in December 1975, which was really well attended, not just for D&D, but for all sorts of board games. And and there was an English scene at the time. Um, I mean, Andrew McNeil with Kingmaker had, yes. had some success. And you know, there were some legendary games develop, designers coming over from the US, like Sid Saxon, of course. Um it's extraordinary guy. I mean, I've visited his house twice in 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 the in the Bronx, and uh, <laughs> every room was floor to ceiling games. Like he had over fifteen thousand games in his house. He told me he'd been burgled several several times, but never had ever lost one game. <laughs> <laughs> he was safe with his collection of games. So that's how we started. Very humble beginnings in a top floor flat in Shepherd Bush, um, importing and distributing Dungeons and Dragons, and then the whole business built out over time. It necessitated us leaving our flat in uh, June 76, when Steve and I went full time, uh, John decided to keep on with his civil engineering um, um, profession. And we went over to the States to visit Gary Gygax, and also at the same time, that Gen Con signed up all the fledgling games companies. and. Mm. Uh, when we came back to the UK, we had nowhere to live and nowhere to operate out of, but um, ended up living in a van for three months and joining local squash clubs for a shave and a shower in the mornings and into our tiny little office we'd rented at the back of a state agent where we did our, our mail orders. But that was a very small triangular life. But then we decided to up our game by stopping White Dwarf, uh, stopping Alan Weasel and, and changing to White Dwarf in 1977. Then we opened our very first retail store in, in 1978. 
And I think that was the big moment when we realized that hobby games was really a very viable proposition. Mm. But before that, were there specialist game shops? Well, the Game Center, which ended up being a customer and also a competitor in, <laughs> in some ways. And there's a few independents like Just Games and Night Games. Mm-hmm. Um, and a few toy and hobby shops as well, and model model shops that would stock in very limited fashion the, the products that we were importing from the US. Yeah. Um, now, Game Center, was that set up by the same chap who ran Games and Puzzles magazine? It was indeed, Graham Levin, yeah. Wow. Okay. So so there was essentially almost a, a one-man um, existing industry but he wasn't publishing games he was he was uh distributing and and retailing and publicizing which is kind of a model that you almost later followed with with games workshop with white dwarf backing up the uh, the stuff and then game center went down in i think 84 yeah they overtraded and got themselves into serious financial uh debt and uh, they were forced to close but what game center didn't have was its own manufacturing base so we were vertically integrated as an expression you learn in later later in life and the reason that happened was we used to um, obviously manufacture our own products um, promote them through our own magazine white dwarf at retail so the margins were high uh, and and, the, and therefore the cash was generated at retail before you had to pay pay your suppliers so that was the point where we called it kind of vertically integrated but um, so that was it was an easier business to to scale, and because the margins were higher, we we were able to to survive. And then focusing later on in the eighties on just Warhammer rather than than promoting other people's products was really the key to success. Yes, yes, and it's and we um, in fact in episode two we talked to Mark Gascoigne and Jervis Johnson um, about Games Workshop in the eighties and and where it where it went from there. Yeah, well, of course, I should also mention that I've just written a book called Diceman about the origin story of Games Workshop from 75 to 85. Oh, what perfect timing. <laughs> um, so, yes, which is which I believe is, is doing really well. Um, and I can't wait to get my I'm going to get my hands on a copy. In fact, this weekend when um, uh, when I should be seeing you. Well, maybe we should do a swap. <laughs> we, we'll do a swap. Yes, that's that's a deal. Uh, so yes, so you were. It sounds like the games you were producing were more influenced by the American style of games, as you say. You mentioned SBI and Avalon Hill and the war yep. game space, which was very strong over that, and obviously the role playing games as well. The British style of things, the intellect games, the kind of thing that David was developing. Uh, David, I'm assuming you were more influenced by the existing British games, but also to what extent were you in touch with German designers or, or uh, European designers? Well, I was more in touch with German designers than with British ones. Um, and I was going to mention that uh, as a result of Hare and Tortoise winning the first Game of the Year award, uh, I got to know the German games market. Uh, one of the founders of the Spiel des Jahres, as you know, was Tom Wernick. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Tom's about the same age as me. In fact, our birthdays are a very short distance apart. Uh, we're still regularly in touch with each other. And um, yes, I, so I went over to Germany and I met Tom 
and uh, quite a lot of other people there in the German games market. So that was very helpful. And at the same time, I mean, this hair and tortoise thing opened up the whole world to me because uh, um, Alex Randolph uh, was quite impressed by it as well. And when he was over in London, he invited me to see him. So we were quite friendly for quite a long time. Um, so I've always tended to think more of the German market. Most of my games, the, the games that I have had published, have been published in Germany, and uh, very few in England. Oh, that's that's interesting. Um, but apart from that, there was very little, as I understand, very little awareness of the German market in in the UK. Games didn't really travel uh, no. back then. Uh, there were foreign editions. I know Hare and Tortoise was was published internationally by a number of companies. Yeah. Um, most notably Ravensburger, or Ravensburger rather, in in Germany as Hass und Eigel. Um, I apologize. Hass und Eigel. Eigel. It's. I thought I'd got it right, and I know it's my German accent is appalling. Um, I don't know. I think a lot of people knew what was going on in Germany. I mean, oh. Essen Games Fair is legendary. I mean. You know, I published self-published two games in which I launched at Essen in 1990. Uh, one called Boomtown, another one called Automania. And not, even then, there was in excess of a hundred thousand people going to going to Essen. So it's always been that sort of focal point for not just family games, but mid-court games. And and that's what I play. I'm sitting in a room with 1,500 board games, most of which are European-based, and talking about the size of the industry today. I mean, David mentioned Hasbro, but let's not forget Asmodee, which is now owned by Embracer, which is a Swedish listed company. And of course, Asmodee is a conglomerate of, of um, you know, a whole bunch of well-known European and some American companies like Fancy Flight and Days of Wonder and Lookout Games and many more. So you know, there's a big scene in Europe, not just in, in playing games at Essen, but also in, in content creation. Yes, but back in the seventies, it's I'm I'm interested in kind of the channels of communication and how much you know. Obviously, in those pre-internet days, when most communication was either by letter or in print, yeah. um, you mentioned the influence of of Owl and Weasel, the newsletter, and the fact that you got a copy to Gary Gygax, or Gary Gygax had somehow got a copy. Yeah, I mean, I came up through the fanzine community in the nineteen eighties. Uh, originally, and that was a potent way of people staying in touch or making new contacts within the hobby. Uh, but we take for granted these days that you know a new game is released and you will just find out about it. In those days, with you know newsletters and uh, the one magazine that there was, Games and Puzzles, until White Dwarf came along, um, it must have been a lot harder to find out what was going on and you know what was new and what was worth looking at. Well, essentially, like you say, you just have to launch a game today and you just find out about it. I'm not sure that's the case because there's so many games launched. I mean, that's true. Last time I went to Essen a couple of years ago, I think there's like 1,800 new games came out. I'm sure there are several hidden gems I've never even heard of. In the old days, there were much fewer games put out and you knew about all of them. Yes. Through word of mouth, through going to conventions, through newsletters, and just making it your business to find out. So there's a, there was the variety of the day was the chat and and the, and the fanzines. But I would say, I don't like sure it's we all hear about the big ones today, but we don't hear about the hidden gems. 
Yes, it, it's true. I, I I had forgotten that there were so you know an order of magnitude, possibly several orders of magnitude fewer games. There's simply less on the market. I mean, it's ironic, really, that the internet has facilitated the boom in in games today. I mean, in 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 the nineties, you go to UK Toy and Hobby Fair, and what I used to call rather rather in bad taste, death row upstairs, where where individual games designers would decide to manufacture their own games, print 5,000 copies of which 4,900 would end up in their garage because they had no distribution platform. And today, of course, the internet has facilitated pre-sales through Kickstarter to see to validate your ideas, able to sell through global markets. And where would we be, where would we be without uh, Board Game Geek? Yeah, Board Game Geek to, to, to review and then learn how to play from Dice Tower and e-commerce. If you haven't got a, 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 a game store in your local vicinity, I mean, there's a fantastic ecosystem around board games now which facilitated this huge surge. And of course, the quality of the design and the quality of the components has improved immensely. So it's no surprise that there is a, such a wonderful boom in board games and tabletop games in general. Yes, it is ex- extraordinary how much easier it is to get into the industry these days. But then again, how much fiercer the competition is once you're there. Mm. You mentioned, just to go back a step for a moment, um, you mentioned conventions and, and meetups and stuff like that. Was there a, a vibrant club scene? David, you were talking about the, the games testing panel for Games and Puzzles magazine. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, as I recollect, there must have been when I first joined it, which was about a year after Games and Puzzles first appeared, um, there were about 10 or so regulars. Uh, I went, we met on, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday evenings in Tottenham Court Road. And uh, not everybody turned up to all of them. So some of them we only saw occasionally. But yes, there was a a basic core of about 10 people. Um, and I was never much of one for, for the club scene anyway, so really that somewhat limited my horizons to those people who had connections with Games and Puzzles and the uh, and the Game Centre that Graham founded. Interesting. But were there, were there larger gatherings? Ian, you mentioned setting up Games Day which continued for a, a long time, I think has, has um, stopped running now, uh, but for a long time, Games Workshop continued to run Games Day, uh, finally, in the last days, uh, towards as a Warhammer-only event. I, I'm glad you, glad you reminded me of Games Day. I remember going to the first one. I went to several after that as well. Yes, it was very good. I enjoyed that. Yeah, it's uh, one of my influences, great influences in, in the hobby is going to a Games Day in, I think, 83, when I was still quite new in, in the hobby and a fervent role player. It, it bit me, Dungeons and Dragons bit me in the same way that it had bitten you some years earlier, Ian, and I was just, I was obsessed. And Games Day, the kind of the proof, the coming together of the great clan, that uh, there are people like you out there and they're just as fervent about this stuff, was almost life-changing. It was great for us in the early days of workshop in in multiple ways. Obviously, just to see which games people were playing was interesting in itself. To see so many people 
playing together was great and people start talking about it in their own fanzines to have traders there and see what they were doing and just creating this little ecosystem and of course opportunities came out of that i mean it was at games day 79 when geraldine cook who was at penguin books attended and she was fascinated by everyone in, in droves playing D D. so fervently and and so immersed in enjoyment that she asked steve and i to write a book about dungeon dragons and we convinced us to write a book to allow you to experience a role playing um to experience role playing firsthand and and that's how we came up with the fighting fantasy concept and um she ultimately the publication the warlock of firetop mountain so if we hadn't had games day you know warlock of firetop mountain fighting fantasy might not have happened Yes, these things, it's, it all seems to be a, a giant chain of, of links. How yeah. many millions of copies have you sold now? It's going on for 21 million now. <laughs> That's, that is extraordinary um, and, and fantastic. I, I meet so many people who say their first influence or that, you know, their first contact with interactive media generally, the whole field of, of games and, and um, telling stories in in that kind of way was a fighting fantasy book and it's you know people who have gone on to be professional novelists professional games designers yeah it's a bit weird that it's now 40 years old but um you know it's the 40th anniversary of warlock fight type mountain and steve and i both wrote new ones this year to celebrate that fantastic when it comes to the the games themselves what what influenced you as as um david to go back to you for a moment when you were designing a game was it simply having an idea and and following it and taking the usual rate route of iterating the design or were you looking at what was selling were you making commercial decisions no i've never been very commercially minded and in any case um i've become aware over the years of uh, you know there are so many different ways of dividing people into two uh, into two, into two groups and I'm aware that the most popular games now are theme games, thematic games, narrative games, storyline games, dramatic games, and so on. Um, this is not me. I'm not a dramatic person. Um, I, I'm not a great reader of fiction. Um, I've no personal interest in fantasy or fantasy games. Uh, in fact, my interest in games started out from being interested in mathematics. My games are, the ones that appeal to me are abstract mathematical games, uh, for which there is a much smaller market. Uh, so that's why I haven't made so much of a, of a mark, I think. Uh, I think Hare and Tortoise is a considerable mark to have, to have made. Uh, yes, um, it's interesting. That that started out as something completely different. It started out as a, a game called Space Race. Um, and the, the mechanism of movement, the triangular numbers, um, was the, the basic idea for that. It, so that's where the mathematical bit comes in. Um, but the Space Race game, I... I played originally on a on a hexagonal grid, so the spacecraft moved not only linearly but in any of six directions, um, and the whole thing became too unwieldy and too complicated um, to play. So I just changed it to being a linear game from one end to the other, uh, and that seemed to work much better. Was the theme of the, the Hare and Tortoise theme, was that your idea or did that come ah, out of the publisher? No, this is what I 
that this is the, as far as I'm concerned, it's the dream situation. It was suggested by the mechanism itself. I tested it originally, I remember when I was inventing it, uh, I was testing it by playing the parts of four different players. Each of one had a particular style. One thought very carefully about what he was doing. Uh, another one played more or less at random. Another one copied what everybody else was doing. I forget what the fourth one was doing. And in the course of that, I discovered that these players were interacting with one another. Um, and it, the, the mechanism itself um, it gave the advantage to either moving fast, very, very, very fast forwards, but running out of resources to continue the race, or of expending your energy very slowly but lagging behind. Uh, and it was that that theme, the the phrase hare and tortoise came into my mind, and having got that. I stopped working on it as an abstract game and turned the units of energy into carrots and and larger units of energy as lettuces and everything else went on from there. Obviously, the, there had to be hair squares and they obviously had to be something where something wild happened. So they, they were the hazard squares. Um, so yeah, that was lovely. Um, and... The, the problem I've always had has been, uh, unlike people like Ian, people like Rainer Knipsia, getting my abstract ideas into some sort of thematic format. It's not my forte at all. I'm actually going to be talking to Rainer uh, in a couple of uh, episodes' time. He's up for, for episode four, I think. Um, but you're right, a lot of his designs are essentially mathematical puzzles or mathematical constructs with a thinly layered theme over, over the top of them, which doesn't seem to have, have dented his commerciality at all. Ian, you were going to say something. Uh, I'm, I'm desperate for the theme. I mean, I think visually I need that sort of fantasy going on in my head to be able to enjoy, to enjoy the mathematics, which is, for me, far too abstract. Yes, I have friends who who you know analyze every move, and you all can almost see them jotting notes on tactics and resources and stuff. I I'm very much a gut player. I I see what seems to be a good move and and tend to make it. I'm not quite sure where that would fit within your four different playtest personas, uh, David. Um, but um, Ian, you talking about again the seventies and the early eighties as Games Workshop was moving into publishing. How did you decide? what games to publish did you were you aiming for a kind of an american style european style something distinctive because your the range of games you put out was quite diverse well uh, the reason we did it because was because um we ended up saying no to a merger with tsr uh, as i said early on we had a three-year exclusive distribution agreement for dungeons and dragons at the end of which it extended for a little into 1979, then Gary Gygax came over to the States with a merger proposition, um, wanted to combine TSR with Games Workshop. And Steve and I not wanting to live half our life in Wisconsin and also being young, kind of independently minded young Brits at the time, um said no but then suddenly we were we were vulnerable because we were no longer exclusive distributors of D, &D although we remained the largest distributor because our network was already well established 
and it would take some time for TfL to set up their UK operation. So we realized we had to start publishing our own board games and we launched an initial four in the series, uh, Doctor Who, which was designed by Derek Carver, who was a prolific player, collector and designer. I didn't know that was a Derek Carver. Yeah. Um, one called Warlock, one called Valley of the Four Winds, which is designed by Lou Pulsifer in the US. He's still around. I'm still in contact with him. He was the first person I ever interviewed for my fanzine. <laughs> right. There was also a range of miniatures from Minifigs, the Southampton-based um, figurine manufacturers. I think they started off in the 60s and still still going today, I believe. And the fourth one, was, of course, was uh, Apocalypse, which was uh, Steve's favourite game the warlord but cut down to a quarter of the size of the of the original game and they did okay but then we wanted to kind of add variety then we employed albie fury as well from from games and puzzles who was very uh, one of our very first employees and he had an incredible influence on on what we were doing not just from design point of view but also from a content point of view I mean, he was a, he's a, he's a great, great, as, as David knows, a great raconteur and games player and larger-than-life character. He came to speak at my school, extraordinarily, in about 1983. And it was, I think it was the first moment that there was an inkling, it put an inkling in my mind that I didn't, I wasn't thinking at that point about becoming a games designer, but that there was, it was possible to be a games designer. Yeah at that point and presumably he was somebody who was making his living in the british games industry so even over the time the time period we're talking you you know people are building careers partly because games workshop exists there is now a a, a basis on which one can can kind of set up as a, a games designer or a, a games editor because which i think albie was mostly editing rather than he was creating. doing a lot of editing on, on white dwarf but he was doing all the design work and all our board games right he did all the productions and and working with artists for for the graphics and stuff. So, but I worked with him in that capacity, and you know, we, he was we, a pretty good cartoonist too, wasn't he? Yeah, he was pretty good. I mean, he was more of a kind of architect designer than a than a an artist artist. But um, he, he wasn't bad at that. But um, he and I used to talk about you know what games we should add to the range. I mean, that's why games like Talisman came along and. I did my own Battle Cars game and Judge Dredd game, which, by the way, has just been republished by Rebellion Unplugged 40 years after its original um, launch back in... Yes, back out there. These things, it's strange, some go away. I always assumed I loved Warlock, um, which it feels like one of the precursors of Magic the Gathering, though I think Richard yeah. Garfield denies that. But it's very much the same style of... War, uh, warlord, not warlords. Warlocks battling by flinging spells at each other. Yeah, artwork by Russ Nicholson in in Warlock. Oh, the great Russ Nicholson, of course. Who then went on to do an awful lot of your fighting fantasy yeah, books. Our very first one, the illustrations for Warlock Fight Up Mountain, as a result of his amazing work on on Warlock. Um, and then we we continued to add to the range, but of course the big breakthrough came when it was actually Citadel who. Uh, instigated Warhammer, Brian Ansell's original idea, and then adding Rick Priestley and Richard Halliwell to the team to uh, put out Warhammer. And of course, Warhammer was originally just going to be given away as a flyer in part of the mail orders. It was just two or three sheets of rules. And then it was realized that this had the potential to be something more than that. And therefore they held back and expanded the rules. 
and it became out of the box set in 1983. So it sold out almost immediately, despite the number of errors that were. <laughs> Second edition came out promptly, and uh, production values were increased. And that was the red box version. And then, of course, role play and ultimately 40K. Yes. Um, defining, certainly, I think, for the British hobby, defining a lot of the 80s, um, which we I talk about later on in, in, in episode two of the podcast. Yeah, and of course, Workshop also put out a lot of UK design games. And Jeff Johnson was obviously a big contributor to that. And Stephen Hand and a whole bunch of other people were UK designers that um, got their first breakthrough workshop. Yes, it's interesting because we talk about the influence from America, which was very much post Dungeons and Dragons, post Avalon Hill, post SPI. And then the European thing, which on the back, I think, of the launch of the Spiel des Jahres and the, the early winners there, the increasing profile of that. But at the same time, there was this distinctive British voice in games design coming through with Games Workshop and smaller companies influenced by it, which never really found a, a solid footing. And I, I think that those designers went off to work in, in, in other territories or for other publishers. But for a while, there was a very distinctive tone in, of British games available for British, British gamers with a British sense of humour, British sense of design. And I'm not quite sure on what a, a British design, designed game would feel like, what, what, how one would put one's finger on that. But talking about it, talk, uh, the influential games of the, this time we're talking about, the, the late 70s to the early 80s, there is one monster that we've not talked about within a very much a commercial game, a family game, Trivial Pursuit, came along. I, did, I worked a Christmas at the Game Centre, in fact, on uh, Oxford Street, 100 Oxford Street, and I would swear that every second person through the door wanted Trivial Pursuit. Uh, we sold so many. And this was, for the time, an expensive game. So it's clear that there was a, a household market, a, a domestic market for games, non-specialist uh, games. Were either of you yeah. influenced by that at all? Did, we, did you try and sell into to that market? Um, I had the opportunity to get the distribution rights for, for the UK and wow. passed them by. I think it was at the New York Toy Fair where I met the, the Canadian company. I've forgotten the name of it now, but... Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's funny how it, that the, the the mass market lies dormant for a long time and suddenly erupts over one particular title. I mean, it happened also here with a UK design game called Kensington, you might recall. I do remember Kensington. That was another kind of phenomenon that happened, like through PR, but it, nevertheless, everyone had a copy of Kensington. Yes, that's one that seems to have disappeared. David, as a designer, what's your opinion of Kensington? Um, hmm. I don't know. I, I had some problems with it, but it's such a long time since I played it that I can't remember what they were. It's a lovely idea. It's beautiful design. It's the sort of thing that appeals to me, but I don't know. I just somehow didn't get on with it all that well. Yeah. And, of course, Mastermind. Everyone had a copy of Mastermind. Of course, yes, Invicta. Um, that was, yes, every home, and they, you still see them in an awful lot of um, junk shops and jumble sales, yeah. missing pieces inevitably. Um, that was. I often wonder about Mastermind, to what extent the uh, television quiz programme of that name 
um, boosted it. And whether whether it was coincidence that they both sort of came out round about the same time. Um, but I, I was always a bit annoyed about the success of Mastermind simply because, um, yeah, it, it's converted into pretty looking pieces that you move around in slots, but it's, it, it's a dressed up version of a game that I'd been playing with pencil and paper for donkey's years before. Yeah, cows and but that that's that's yes that's it exactly and it, it's amazing now uh how many games you see on the shelves uh, especially in the, the mass market shops like wh smiths and so on which are just variations obvious obvious variations on traditional pencil and paper games Yes, or or even traditional dice games. My favourite example is is Pass the Pigs, which is the traditional dice game pig with plastic pigs. It's you know the the, the clues in the name, uh, but of course the most famous dice game is Yahtzee, wasn't it? In terms of mass. Yes. Um, when did Yahtzee come out? I'm I'm not. Uh, it, I have to admit, I've never owned a copy of it. Yeah. But then one doesn't really have to. You, if you've got a handful of, of six-sided dice, you can play Yardstick. It just shows the potential that everyone enjoys playing games if the right one comes along that has mass market appeal. But, I mean, I think in the UK it's always been more of a niche hobby in the, in the strict board games sense. I mean, but it allows some really great companies to be successful, albeit at a kind of cottage industry level like Heartland Trefoil with um, 1829 and Civilization, for example. Yes, Francis Tresham's uh, amazing output. Um, I feel al- almost more influential than played. Uh, I mean, it found a, a niche within the hobby, but the impact it's had on other people's designs, particularly in the computer field. Um, I mean, the Civilization, the computer game, clearly owes a very visible debt to Civilization, the board game. I mean, in terms of your personal tastes in games, are, are there any titles from that time, from the, the 70s or the early 80s, that, that stand out that you either loved dearly at the time or that you still go back to today? Well, the standout title for me in those days probably had to be Diplomacy. It's the one I played a lot of. Yeah, a diploma, that was originally released in the was it early, late 50s or early 60s? Yeah, I think it, I think it was late 60s. And I can't remember when a choir came out, Sid Sachs's a choir, but I played that an awful lot. That was sixty-three or sixty-four. That was one of the first releases from from Three M Games. Yeah, um, I picked up a beautiful copy of that at Essen. What with the wooden pieces? Um, no, sadly, it's it's not a very original one. But it's uh, I was after one with I'm still after one with the wooden pieces. Uh, but no, this was a early but not original. I went to the auction when Sid sadly passed away. It was in just in, in New Jersey, and it was a, it was a it was a terrible thing to see his live collection sold by an auctioneer. Didn't understand what actually a game was, and sold like a cattle market: one dollar, two dollar, three dollar, three dollar, three dollar, four dollar, four dollar, four dollar sold. I think much the same happened to R.C. Bell's collection of games too. Really? Oh, Bell. When when did Bell die? Um, Bell, of course, who who wrote? I mean, not so much a designer, but one of the great historians of the game field. Yes, yes, chiefly. Um, when did he die? I 
can't remember now. I think it's, I, I have met his son since. Um, uh, yes, I, I remember having a chat with his son uh, about Robbie Bell. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm just I'm frantically googling as as we say 2002. It's interesting because the one I've always had the sense that these people were further back in the 20th century, but no, that's comparatively recently. And David, of course, you wrote the Oxford history of of board games, which is now available again as Parlet's history of board games. Whenabouts did that come out? Uh, well, <clears throat> I was asked to write the Oxford History of Board Games because OUP, Oxford University Press, had previously published my Oxford History of Card Games. Now, we haven't mentioned card games, but card games has, has been uh, my lifelong passion. Um, oh. At least, I say my lifelong passion since about the, uh, since about my early 20s when I suddenly stopped playing chess and suddenly found myself preferring to play games where you had to think you, you had to be, yeah, very nice. Yeah, yeah, Ian has just been flashing me with a copy of Intellect um, Hair and Tortoise. Yeah, uh, I want to talk a bit about card games, actually, because I was um, a teacher at the time during the, I started my career as a teacher in the early 1960s. I was teaching French and German. And at one school I was at, um, the I played chess quite a lot. At one school I was at, we regularly had the, the staff had an annual Creechbill tournament, you know, blind chess. Um, and I noticed with interest that that was always won, not by the best chess player, but by the best bridge player. And, and I discovered that I was much better at Creechbill than I was at chess um I, I somehow the, the idea that you had to think about de make deductions from what you were seeing to find the position of the equipment the position of the components and who had what where um so i suddenly decided that card games were probably my forte and um yeah it's rather funny because i got this interest just about about 1964 or 5 um, and I was going through this phase when I got married in 1966 and we spent much of our honeymoon playing cards just trying all the all the games in the teach yourself card games for two um, and, and I found that was much more card games were much more to my taste um, now then, I'm trying to remember where I was going to go with with card games. I mean, I've invented far far more card games than anything else. But I, but again, these have never been highly commercial because I stick to playing with with traditional cards. Well, you need you need to put some themes on it. I mean, look, talking about about card games that have been thematic. I mean, Lost Cities, yes, and Knizia, the shining example of a card game where I've added a nice little theme to it, and it makes it. Yeah, you know, a lot more presentable. Uh, Richard Garfield's Great Dalmuti is another one that's uh, it's a traditional card game that he simply dressed up with picture cards. So I had been collecting information on the history of card games right from the mid nineteen sixties, um, and it wasn't until uh, about the late 
mid-80s that I had by that time had um, a literary agent for my books because I'd started writing games books uh, as a result of games and puzzles. Um, and he managed to persuade uh, Oxford University Press to, to publish the things that I, that I discovered and wanted to write about um, as the Oxford history of card games. Um, so having got that, which I've been collected, informa collecting information about for years, they suddenly asked me to do a history of board games, for which I had not been collecting in historical information for years. Um, so I um, so I had to do a load of research in the 1990s to do this, and this was bef just before um, the big computer revolution, and it was the last book I wrote before getting online and having access to the internet. So I I did all the research from that by um, going to specialist libraries um, and corresponding with loads of correspondence that I'd made through games and puzzles uh, to get more background for it. And uh, I'm, in, I'm rather sad that my history of board games is not really as good as my history of card games, although it continues to sell better, uh, which I think is a great shape. What's your favourite card game then, David? Oh, German national card game. You see, I, 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 I got into this German culture um, as a result of Pazel and Eagle winning the first Spiel des Jahres in 1979. So, but that actually I had already, because... Uh, French and German were my teaching subjects. I had already been introduced to SCART uh, when I was at college anyway, so that went back quite a long way. Yeah, so that's the traditional game that I enjoy playing most, but of course if anybody really asked me what my favourite card game is, it would be one of my what several of my own. Um, which reminds me of one success I have had in attaching a sort of theme to a card game, and that's my game called Chicken Out, uh, which is basically a simple adding up shedding game. And really, I, I enjoy playing that because it's so fast. And although um, I, I think this is one of the attractions of card games, it's the fact that they can be played at speed. I don't really like spending hours and hours over a board game. Uh, with a card game, you can get a hand of cards over in a very short space of time and then have a lot of fun and chat before the next deal. Uh, so that's it. A, a lifelong um, concern and irritation of mine is that I'm interested in so many things, I never have enough time for anything. <laughs> I tend to agree with you. Time is a, is, a, is a commodity that is getting a bit scarce and um, I, I prefer much shorter games these days. I can't yeah. allow myself to play for a game that's going to take two hours or more. So it has to be an hour or less. Yeah, well, at my age, you know, I don't know how much time I've got left and I've got to get as many card games played as possible. Fantastic. Yes, the, the, sadly, at least for me, the days of the weekend long session campaign game is, is long gone. Yeah. Gentlemen, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you both so much for your for your time. Um, David, uh, obviously, Parlet's history of, of uh, board games is is still available. You write for games and puzzles. Where else can we find you? Uh, on my website, mainly, I think. 
Ah, oh, excellent. So anyone looking to publish a card game, get in touch with David Parlett because he's got loads. Ian, you mentioned uh, The Dice Men, your, your new book about the early days of Games Workshop and a lot of what we've been talking about today. Um, and you also mentioned in passing new fighting fantasy books and, and the Judge Dread board game. Um, you are very good at slipping these into conversation, I have to say. Uh, what else would you? <laughs> what else can you plug? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. But um, it's been uh, a great fun talking about this. And if you want to find me, you can always find me on Twitter. Huge thanks to David and Ian for their time and their expertise. A few follow-ups from things mentioned in the dialogue. Diplomacy by Alan Calhammer actually came out in 1959. It's still in print. Possibly the definitive simple war game, the precursor to risk, but diceless. It's all about tactics. It's all about negotiation. And mostly, actually, it's about treachery. A brilliant, brilliant game. Don't play it with close friends. They won't be close friends by the end. The Warlord by Mike Hayes originally came out in 1974. It was reissued a few years ago, but is now quite collectible. A really interesting European-based risk-style game, but involving nuclear war. Worth hunting down if you can find a cheap copy. Scat is two centuries old. It's a traditional card game, a three-player trick-taker. Uh, it is the national game of Germany, or is often referred to as such. Katarenga, David's Game, came out in 2017 from Hook in Germany. Um, it's an interesting chess-style semi-abstract where the space you're on defines what your piece can do. Parlett's History of Board Games is widely available based on his Oxford History of Board Games. A charming and delightful read, uh, deeply informed, and informed Ian and my Board Games in 100 Moves, which came out in the late 2010s from Dorling Kindersley. It's out of print now, so we don't get royalties anymore, so don't feel you have to chase down a copy. Dice Men, Ian's more recent book, is just out from Unbound, the history of the early days of Games Workshop, and is a delightful read. I hope all of this has helped to enhance your understanding and your enjoyment of mo both modern board games, but also of my book Everybody Wins, uh, widely available wherever good books and good games are sold. In episode two, we'll be talking about the 1980s, specifically the mid-80s to the mid-90s, a time of tumultuous change and the rise of German game design within the games industry. Helping me to do that will be two games authorities. Jervis Johnson, best known as the designer of Blood Bowl, but also of the Games Workshop classics Adeptus Titanicus, Necromunda, co-creator of the Warhammer Age of Sigmar, and Mark Gascoigne, publisher, writer, games designer, uh, and incidentally, my publisher on Everybody Wins. It's a really interesting conversation, and I hope you'll join me for it. This is the Play to Win podcast from Aconite Books, with me, James Wallace. This first series of the podcast accompanies my new book, Everybody Wins, four decades of the greatest board games ever made. Out now in the UK, and coming to the US and Canada in spring 2023.